you know, I knew I couldn't live with myself if I pled guilty to something I didn't do. 50 days of being wiretapped, the FBI and the U.S. attorney knew what kind of person I was and how I conducted myself. How do you prepare yourself to be indicted, you know? Trying to understand how you prepare yourself for something that could inalterably change your life. And the only thing I could think to do was to face it head on. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Before we introduce today's topic, let me take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management uh, platform for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Robert Blagojevich was a successful businessman with certainly and virtually no involvement in politics before his brother, Rod Blagojevich, the governor of Illinois, asked him to help out with his fundraising for his re-election campaign. The next thing he knew, Robert was facing a federal indictment for, among many other charges, attempting to sell Barack Obama's former Senate seat after the 2008 presidential election. He fought the indictment and eventually won. Today, he's detailed that fight in a new book, Fundraiser A, My Fight for Freedom and Justice. Joining us today to discuss that book, uh, we welcome the author himself, Robert Boglojevich. Thank you uh, for joining us today on Lawyer to Lawyer. And thank you both for having me on. Uh, Robert, I, I wonder if we could kind of start at the beginning. You were uh, a successful businessman in Nashville when uh, you went to work for your brother's re-election campaign. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. My brother and I grew up uh, very close uh, in, the, in the northwest side of Chicago, and our parents always preached to us that when they were gone, we'd only have each other, and if one needed help, the other should be prepared to step in. And so the summer of 2008, uh, we were up visiting uh, in Chicago with our son, Alex, who was working there at that time. And my brother called me on the 4th of July uh, of that year, 2008, and asked me if I'd come talk to him at his home. And during that conversation, it was clear it was, was more of a business meeting, not a social meeting. And he asked me if I would help him fundraise through the end of the year. The question was, really, uh, you're the only person I can trust to do it right uh, at this point, And would you consider doing that for the four months? Uh, through the end of the year, and after much discussion with my wife, Julie, uh, who reminded me that my parents had asked us to help each other, uh, I said, yes, I'd help you out on two conditions. One, that I would never play anyone for a contribution, and two, we had to get along. Rod and I have very different personalities, and if and for some reason it ended up not being fun for me, he would understood that I was going to just pack up and leave after I fulfilled my commitment. So he understood that, and agreed. And August 1st of that year, started working with him, making calls, trying to fundraise. And then describe for us, if you would, what happened after you agreed to do the fundraising. Your book details some pretty interesting propositions. 
You know, it's funny, uh, and this came out of my testimony uh, where I testified under cross-examination that people were always nibbling around the fringes trying to get something in return for a campaign contribution in the form of some help from the state of Illinois. And I made it very clear from the beginning when I met with anyone that I was separate from the government and would uh, only help them uh, possibly meet people, but that was the extent of making introductions. I would not help them facilitate any agenda that they had. And so very happily and properly conducted myself. An example of that, if if this would be appropriate to, to tell you now, it is in the book, and this was typical of the kind of stuff that was proposed to me, and the government knew these examples even before they indicted me. I got a call from a gentleman uh, who was trying to get his Ph.D. process through Southern Illinois University. He became frustrated, somehow called our campaign office, and asked me if I would help him get his Ph.D. process through through the system. And I told him, well, I, I couldn't do that, but I could forward his information to someone that I knew, Rod Chief of Staff at that time, who said he'd help me with requests like that. And he qualified by saying, well, I would be happy to give you a substantial contribution if you help me with this. And I said, that's not necessary. I just want to help you uh, if you needed help. And so he failed to send me the necessary information that would have helped him. And in retrospect, I even wrote that I wondered whether you know this guy was representing some nefarious government interest trying to set me up because uh, it was very suspicious in retrospect that he was willing to make a substantial contribution to get help from me, which in the end, he, we didn't help him. I mean, you really had no, as, as we said in the introduction, really no involvement in, in campaign fundraising prior to going to work for your brother in 2008. And correct me if I'm wrong on that, but what, what, what kinds of parameters did you set for yourself going into this? What were your expectations? Well, one of the most important conversations I had uh, prior to actually starting to make calls was to meet with my brother's legal counsel. Uh, about the kind of the, the do's and don'ts in political fundraising. And one thing that was made very clear to me, which I already expected it to be, was no quid pro quos. In other words, never give someone a governmental action or benefit in uh, exchange for a campaign contribution. It, that's pretty black and white to me, and it was very simple to follow. And that's precisely what I did, despite all these people nibbling around me I was able to manage through that and, you know, kind of even humorously laugh some of the, the the overtures off because these lot of people were very, very clumsy. And, you know, the key to the, the whole uh, situation that I was in, the center of it, were two people who came to me offering money and rep to represent Jesse Jackson Jr., which you may want to get into later on, but that was the most egregious approach to me. It was substantial money that ultimately got me indicted. Well, Maybe we can fast forward slightly to to December ninth, two thousand and eight, and we can and we can talk more about Jesse Jackson later. But December ninth, two thousand and eight, uh, you're in your condo in Chicago, six twenty one a.m. The doorbell rings. What happened? Yeah, yes, didn't expect anyone to be ringing the doorbell continuously, nonstop at six twenty one in the morning. Uh, woke up, put some clothes on, very quickly went downstairs, and there you are standing in front of me, the proverbial guys in trench coats, flashing badges flashing and presenting me with a subpoena requesting a number of documents and uh, access to the Friends of Blagojevich campaign office. 
and I asked them directly, well, what if I don't help you out? Well, we're going to break the door down and we're going to get access to the campaign office. And so I told them that I would help them and went upstairs. It was cold. It was wintertime and got dressed and led them down there where when I showed up, there were at least 10 or 15 other people waiting there at the campaign office uh, for me to let them in. And so it was a very uh, shocking, startling way to uh, begin that day and really to begin the rest of my life because it changed dramatically that morning, that day when they woke me up. Yeah, that would just to be clear. You weren't you were not served with an arrest warrant that day. That was a, a search warrant, but that was kind of your first step into this this morass that you detail in your book. That's correct. My brother was arrested that morning, but I was just subpoenaed. As as all of this began to sink in, I think I think that surprised me most about the way that you handled your defense was what you did early on with your wife and your family. Can you describe that for us? Uh, well, there are so many aspects to a federal indictment or a pending federal indictment that crossed my mind. One was, you know, what will happen to my family if the worst case happens and I'm convicted and I go to prison? And so I sat down with my wife, Julie, and my son, Alex, and we had this conversation where I told them that I could not live with myself if I did something wrong and didn't tell them. And so I told them directly that, I did nothing wrong and that uh, I was worried that if something did not, if it didn't work out for me in court, what would happen to them? And Alex very quickly said, you know, I'll move in with mom here in Nashville and, you know, we'll live together and wait for you to come back. And so that was one of the many little hurdles I had to go through because the, the impact on your psychology and the fact, at least for me, the feeling of total loss of control in a life that was fairly organized and, you know, goal-oriented was lost because of the uncertainty of this trial that was going to be out two years from all of the events that were occurring around me at the time. I had to organize around that. And my son, Alex, sat down with me shortly after we returned from Chicago the day that I was subpoenaed. And I asked him that if he would help me organize a business plan, a very short five-point plan that we would have elements that I would follow every day to give me some structure in some measurable way for me every day to psychologically think that at least, hey, I could go run for three or five miles. I could do X, Y, Z. I could eat a certain way. I could control my my exposure to people who were positive in my life and, and, and avoid those negative influences that drained energy from me that I needed to focus on to prepare for court. And so he was very helpful. Julie was very helpful also during that time. And we all as a team chipped in and helped each other and others in my family and my close friends here in Nashville pitched in. I mean, you don't get through something like this all by yourself. And so they were instrumental in uh, doing what they could do. Uh, Alex and Julie in particular, when we got the discovery dump, transcribed hours and hours of FBI intercepts of my conversations with fundraising prospects, my brother, 284 conversations between Julie and me and my son Alex, all very personal conversations that when she first heard uh, her voice with mine on the phone, she had a bit of an emotional reaction to it, and I heard her screaming out while she was transcribing, and it took her some time to adjust and adapt to having to just forge through and not let that get her down so that we could transcribe and help the legal team 
have this information and try to mitigate some of the costs that we were facing, you know, trial and the costs of having to simulate and figure out the uh, discovery that we received. So we all pitched in. We did all, we all did what we could do. One of the things that really uh, interested me about this book, as a lawyer myself, was reading your perspective on the legal system as a non-lawyer and as, as somebody who, from what I can tell, didn't have much uh, much uh, by way of encounters with the legal system before all this came to came to be. And, and one of the uh, things you describe early on is, is your realization that you probably should have a lawyer and, uh, and, and the way you went about finding a lawyer, you eventually retained not eventually, fairly quickly, I guess, retained Mike Ettinger as a veteran trial lawyer uh, outside of Chicago. What was that process like for you of, of, of trying to find a lawyer when you weren't even quite sure yet what you were facing? Yeah, that's a great question. And that was quite a learning experience for me. I was a corporate executive uh, before I became a small business owner. And I dealt with some of the best law firms, the biggest law firms in national, regional law firms, but nothing to do with the criminal system. And I consider myself a fairly sophisticated guy. I really didn't know the difference between a civil and a criminal case until my eyes were open when I started interviewing lawyers that, geez, I'm facing prison given these initially two felony charges against me, that this is really serious stuff. And so uh, I went through, you know, drew back on my experiences in the corporate world and in, in in the Army, military, and just went through a methodical process of asking questions, trying to get an understanding of the system as I asked those questions and try to, in whatever way I could get a measure of each of the attorneys that I interviewed. Ultimately, I chose Michael Ettinger, who was quite an interesting guy. Uh, Again, I was used to buttoned up uh, lawyers who never, at least initially, used profanity and were very corporate in their approach to dealing with me and the issues that I had to deal with in my job. Mike, on the other hand, uh, met me at a restaurant uh, in Skokie, Illinois, one night on his way home from work. He told me his wife, Maureen, wasn't going to be cooking dinner, and he was going to have his dinner there at the restaurant. Did I want to eat anything? And I was not hungry and only had coffee. But he ordered scrambled eggs. I'll never forget this, hash browns and bacon. And during the conversation where he started schooling me on what I was up against, telling me that the government was my enemy, that I would plead the fifth, and that I would not proffer and speak to the government was shocking and eye-opening to me. And while he's telling me this with the intensity that I'd really never seen in any of the lawyers I've worked with before, he had a little piece of scrambled egg hanging on his lower lip that I will (laughs) never forget. And I tell the story to anyone who listened to me because in the intensity of what I was going through, that was just one of those moments that I'll never forget, and now I can laugh about and make fun of at his expense, and he knows it. Uh, but it was a contrast to what I was accustomed to. And, you know, in the end, I may have just stumbled into picking the right guy, but I sure did pick the right attorney after I went through uh, three or four or five different options that I considered. Mm. Uh, there's no question the most crucial decision I made, he was the right pick. Yeah, you, you even described him as, as Columbo-like, I, I think, uh, yeah. at, at some point in your book. I, and I think Craig and I could probably both share stories of uh, walking into law offices and seeing lawyers with the, the files piled up all over the place and, and that sort of thing, uh, like like you've described there. But uh, clearly mm-hmm. he uh, he knew what he was doing when it came to your defense. And there were, there were two other lawyers in, on your team as well, Cheryl Schroeder and Robin Malaro as well. So 
the uh, indictment did eventually come. I mean, you were at, at this point still not indicted, as I understand it, at the point that you retained a lawyer. And uh, how did you react when that came to be, when you found out that you were, in fact, going to be charged? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, one of those moments you never forget. The day before the indictments came down, my business associate, Kevin Stinson, uh, drove to my home because uh, he was in, alarmed that he had been called, subpoenaed by the IRS for all my tax records that he had in my business back six or seven years and wanted to tell me that verbally. And so I immediately called Mike uh, and told him that uh, this request had happened. And Mike all along didn't think I was going to be indicted, but this was a clear indicator that that was going to happen. And that was April 1st, April Fool's Day of 2009. Next day, Mike calls me and says, prepare yourself. This was late in the day. Prepare yourself. We're about to hear what the indictments, what indictments are coming down. And as it turned out, I'm thinking to myself, how, how do you prepare yourself to be indicted? You know, I mean, it, and I did write about this uh, in the book, uh, trying to understand how you prepare yourself for something that could inalterably change your life. And the only thing I could think to do was to face it head on. And so when he called me, uh, he said, you've been indicted, uh, two counts. He explained them to me. They meant nothing to me. Uh, because he mentioned honest services, wire fraud. And I asked, well, what did I do wrong? And he said, well, I can't tell you that right now. I need to read the indictment. It's too early, but I wanted you to know. And so that really was another milestone in my legal education because I learned very quickly that at least the laws that I was charged under were so very, very vague and authorized the prosecutor's great latitude in charging me in particular, and I'm, and I'm sure scores of other people around the country over the years, that it was baffling to me that there was no precision to the system or the process. It was left to, uh, left with so much latitude for prosecutors to pursue whatever agendas they may have come up with or theories of indictment that they came up with it, to me gave them a very unfair advantage. And so that was a consistent theme all throughout, even up until the end, where they were in one way or another, playing with my life. And of the many emotions I had to control, one, of course, was to try to keep control in my own life after having been indicted. But the other one was to control my anger because I was so angry at what they were doing to me and could get away with it without consequence or accountability, where in my life, uh, if I did something improper in business or in the Army or whatever my life circumstances were, there typically was accountability. And there's none. There was none in this process. And so I had to learn to control my anger as well. Well, Robert, we need to take a quick break. Uh, before we move on to our segment, we're going to hear a short message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio, 
Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi with my co-host Jay Craig Williams, and we're talking today with Robert Bogoyevich, uh, talking about his recently released book, Fundraiser A, My Fight for Freedom and Justice, detailing uh, his uh, involvement uh, as in the federal prosecution uh, of his brother, Rod, the former governor of Illinois. And... Uh, you you were just alluding to this, but the whole book really kind of paints you as as a pawn, effectively uh, being used by the U.S. attorney then in Chicago, Patrick Fitzgerald, uh, basically to get at your brother. Uh, is that a fair statement? Is that how you saw uh, how your involvement in this case? Yes, and I can illustrate that numerous times. But the one that started it all was shortly after my first uh, arraignment in Chicago. I was back home in Nashville, and Mike Ettinger called me to say, hey, I just spoke with the lead prosecutor, Reed Shar, and uh, he is offering a global solution for you and your brother. Uh, he said that Shar told him that we've got the governor, but your guy can win, meaning that I could win as a defendant. And I asked Mike, well, why did they indict me if I could win? He said, well, that's not the point at this stage, but they want you to talk to your brother and come up with a global solution between the two of you to see if we could work something out uh, and possibly avoid going to trial. And, and I was, at that point, the beginning of many other data points through the process that it was clear to me that uh, I was just in this to be used against my brother. And subsequently, I've learned, and, and I'm sure a lot of your audience knows this, that one of the first techniques that prosecutors use is to get is to cut plea deals to so that the defendants can avoid the uncertainty of a trial, have a guaranteed potential resolution if the judge agrees to it, and you as a defendant, and I know I went through this myself uh, through the process, you do a cost-benefit analysis. Well, this is costing me X number of dollars an hour times days and months, weeks and months. And not only is it that, it's just it's draining me emotionally and, and, and physically. That's a cost versus going to this unknown future trial with prosecutors who are doing everything they can to discredit you because you know you did nothing wrong. And so they, you, you have to assess oftentimes the selection of two bad choices uh, in a system that to me I thought was just much more linear and clearer and easier and logical to follow. So we said no to his offer of a global solution. I never spoke to my brother about that conversation that Mike and I had regarding the prosecutor's uh, uh, overture to us, and uh, I never asked my brother if he would plead for me to give me some shorter, or not just a shorter, but a less severe punishment. Uh, we just went on to trial. But that was the first point where they were clearly saying, we, we want a global solution, have the brothers talk. You mentioned a statistic in your book that you and I was unfamiliar with, that only 4% of the defendants that are charged federally ever get dismissed. You kind yeah. of alluded you alluded to that when you were talking about the plea bargain issue because a significant number of people go and, and accept plea bargains or take plea bargains. Why did you 
continue to fight this and not go for a plea bargain? What was it that got you dismissed? You know, I knew I couldn't live with myself if I pled guilty to something I didn't do. And I was willing to face the consequences if the system and the process prevented me from really proving my innocence. Uh, and so it was driven by the anger and outrage I felt for having been indicted, knowing with 50 days of being wiretapped, the FBI and the U.S. attorney knew what kind of person I was and how I conducted myself. Plus, when we read all the 302s, it was clear from their investigation and, and looking into me that I was a, an ethical, honorable man responsibly fundraising. So I knew all of that, and I wasn't going to cower to these people who were trying to ruin my life, even though they had the power, unchecked power to do that. I just did, wasn't going to surrender, and so organized my whole life around once I accepted the fact that I get up in the morning now, it's to win in court. I organized my life around that. And that was that gave me the power and the strength, the focus, and ultimately, in a convoluted way, really, prevail at trial. I was not acquitted. Uh, the jury came back hung 9-3 to three in favor of acquittal. I testified in my defense, and I'm told by all sources, the media in particular, that I was a very effective witness for myself and my brother uh, and had the money to pay for lawyers, at least that one go around, uh, and I was innocent. And even with all of those three factors, it was still hung. And I am fortunate to be here, one of the 4% of people, to have, despite those odds, survived it because of the shenanigans the government tried to pull on us uh, after the hung jury and getting ready to, to set the, at, a, at a hearing the next second trial. They played games with my life there as well. well what was the final cost to you in legal fees? Just under a million dollars all in uh, legal fees and having to live up in Chicago, uh, just under a million dollars. And, and how much did you make as a fundraiser or at being paid? I was paid less than $60,000 for the time that I was there. And we knew that that was going to come up as an issue during the trial. And so while I was on trial, we knew it was going to come up and we were prepared for that because it wasn't for me about the money. It was about just the cost of having to live up there and do what I needed to do for Rod. The government uh, subpoenaed us. Even while we were on trial, my CPA called me in the middle of the trial and said, Rod, the IRS has uh, requested your tax returns for the last five or six years. Uh, you know, I just wanted you to know. And so we provided them that. And what was very evident to them when they were looking through there to see if they could discredit me in some way, that the equivalent of the tax equivalent yield of all the money that I made with my brother, I had given away to nonprofits here in Nashville the university that I went to in Tampa. And so it was clear I wasn't there to try to make money. And so it was minuscule compared to what I had to pay in legal fees. Robert, I, I'm a, a former newspaper guy uh, b before I was a lawyer. And even, even after I was a lawyer for many years, I was an editor of uh, various newspapers. And uh, uh, your descriptions of your dealings with the news media were really interesting to me and, and of your lawyer's dealings with the media. And you, you kind of portray this uh, scenario uh, in which they're both kind of using each other. I, I think it, at some point you, you say that, you know, the, the press wants to talk to the lawyers to try and get the inside story and get the scoop. And at the meanwhile, the, the lawyers want to talk to the press to find out what they're hearing and, and what's going on uh, uh, that they're picking up. 
What did you learn about about the role of the media in uh, playing out a public trial like this? You know, the day of my first arraignment, I was walking through this gauntlet of press question uh, reporters and cameras, and you know, I reflected that you know I know now I know how celebrities feel when the paparazzi are trying to surround them. Except that I wasn't a celebrity, and I didn't want them there, and that was. Uh, so illustrative of what my approach was. I didn't want to talk to them. And Mike forced me throughout the process without ever telling me what to say, which I think was proper on his part. But, you know, who knows, you know, if he had a client uh, who couldn't say the right things, how you could mess up. But I fortunately was able to say whatever was needed. Uh, But I, I, I saw through that process how he managed symbiotically, uh, his relationship with the press and the press's, press's desire to get access to him to know about me because nobody knew, knew me in Chicago. I, was, I, I grew up there, went away to college, never really lived there again, but I went back for those months to help my brother out. So I was a mystery to a lot of people, and he had a lot of insight that he could share with them, whatever strategies he thought he could dribble to them that they might comment on. But he also knew they had a back channel of the prosecutors because what I learned was the prosecutor, you know, the U.S. attorney's offices manipulate the potential jury pool shamelessly through the media, through leaks, through press conferences. And in Patrick Fitzgerald's case, the day my brother was arrested, he proclaimed to the world that if Lincoln would roll over in his grave, if he knew uh, that Barack Obama's Senate seat was being sold to the highest bidder by my brother, that he was conspiring to sell it which was the most, to me, the most outrageous claim that should have nulled any prosecution against us, at least in that jurisdiction. So I saw firsthand how the prosecutors manipulate the press. And we got our little, you know, responses back uh, through Mike, but they were, they're big league and they have all the resources. And, you know, the, the, the press is going to want to talk to the U.S. Attorney's Office sooner and faster than they want to talk to some little you know, criminal defense attorney representing a defendant. So all through the process, very outmatched and overwhelmed by the resources of and the reach of the U.S. attorney in many ways, in particular to the media. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so we'd like to invite our guest, Robert Blagojevich, to share his final thoughts and contact information should our listeners like to reach out and talk with you. But Robert, before we do that, I'd, I'd like to also get you to include as part of your wrap-up what your thoughts were as you read your brother's indictment and all the references to Fundraiser A, which is how you got the title to your book. It was Kafkaesque, frankly. Uh, The indictment and references to me in particular uh, were not anywhere near the reality that I experienced. And sadly, it's made me a very cynical uh, American, very concerned about how our civil liberties somehow are being slowly chipped away Uh, and we just stand by and let it go. So one of the reasons for writing the book eventually was to have a platform, which I'm very grateful that you all have provided me, to talk about. Not so much my story, it's the backdrop, but it's the the overreach and abuse, for sure, by federal prosecutors, in particular Patrick Fitzgerald, uh, who had an agenda to get my brother and would use anyone uh, that he could to uh, win. To me, if there's an importance to my book, it's to tell a story first person about what it's like to be indicted, survive it, and be the one, you know, the few four percent who beat Goliath. Uh, this is for sure a David and Goliath battle. But if your viewers, uh, listeners, want to get a hold of me, I've got a website set up. It's 
robertblagojevich.com. Uh, I'll spare you the re- writing of the, the spelling of my last name, but it's all Robert Blagojevich. And uh, there's a lot of information there, uh, contact information to reach me there. But I'll, I'll do this as well because I welcome any feedback or uh, outreach to me. Here's my phone number. If anybody wants to call me, please feel free to call me at 615-417-2605. That's 615-417-2605. I have kind of felt a necessity to make as much outreach as I could to anyone who would want to talk to me about my situation or how I can help them with potential situations themselves. So 615-417-2605, I'll be happy to talk to anyone. I probably won't answer the first time you call if I don't recognize your number, (laughs) but after that I will if you leave a good message. And I'll remind you of this. That number was wiretapped for 50 days, and I have intentionally not changed that number and proudly now tell people in no uncertain terms that, you know, Someone may be listening if we're talking to each other. Well, we hope somebody's listening right now uh, because uh, <laughs> that, that's the whole point. And uh, thank you. The book is Fundraiser A, My Fight for Freedom and Justice. And Robert Bogoyevich, we really appreciate your being with us. And I assume they can find the book in all the usual uh, places? They can. Amazon is probably the most uh, yeah. seamless, easiest way to get it. Well, thank you very much. Really interesting talking to you today. And thank you very much, and I thank your listeners for giving me the courtesy of listening. Well, Bob, that brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.